We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. For boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit winbet.com. That's W-H-N-N-Bet.com to start winning. Blue Wire. Welcome back. It's the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always, my co-host Nick Pilato. And the good news today is that I fully recovered from that nasty head cold slash bug or whatever I picked up last week. Wasn't COVID. Tested twice. Rapid. Once PCR. Not COVID. Not COVID. Okay. Let's make that clear. But it was it was definitely bringing me down, Nick. And I'm happy because look, we are on training camp eve with the Giants. So that's the cool thing. Tomorrow starts practice. I really wish I could get out there. A lot of people have been asking me to go out to practice. My cousin Ari and Uncle Steve, big-time listeners of the show, award-winning listeners, two of my favorite people based on that. They're going this week, I believe, on Friday. They wanted me to come. I just – I or maybe it was Thursday. I can't make it work during a work day, I don't think, especially with everything that's going on in the fantasy world right now with CBS. But I am going to try to get out there for everyone. And we are tentatively – Nick is visiting Jersey. We're tentatively trying to make it out, both Nick and I, to FanFest next Friday. That, I believe, is part practice, part FanFest, part whatever. So be on the lookout for that. If you guys want to meet up, we'd love to meet any and all of you. Seriously, though, we would love to meet any of you and all of you at the FanFest. You'll hopefully recognize us. We'll hopefully recognize you from your Twitter bio or whatever. But, yeah, be on the lookout. If you guys are going to FanFest next Friday, please reach out to us beforehand and we'd love to meet up with you there we're probably gonna meet up with some friends anyway maybe meet up with the talking giants guys things of that nature so definitely be on the lookout but it's training camp eve nick and there's a lot of things i want to talk about and catch up on before it starts tomorrow before the practice is going that's what we're doing today we're talking about the dichotomy right now between the athletic piece that came out where mike sando basically value uh you know polled surveyed tons of nfl coaches nfl personnel execs and got a valuation of Daniel Jones versus what Greg Cassell did on a recent podcast, Inside the Birds, which was evaluate the film of Daniel Jones. And that's Greg Cassell, the GOAT, the guru, the guy that I started to love watching film. The reason I like X's and O's is because of his film. This guy pours countless hours into film. Talked about how he recently spent so much time watching Daniel Jones. 
And it's just such a dichotomy, which I want to get your take on, Nick, as we move forward, between what Cassell sees of Jones and what these NFL coaches see. Um, it's just so hot and cold, one way versus the other. So so interesting. And then I also want to talk about some recent Giants news, guys they've worked out, guys they've signed, potential there. Before we do any of that, Nick, how are you doing today, my friend? I know you recently underwent a move. I did. I moved to the west side of the valley, so I'm still unpacking and kind of getting situated. But I'm just really excited that training camp is starting. I'm heading back to Jersey. Hopefully, I can make it out to FanFest. I have a wedding that weekend, but it would be great to see a lot of the listeners of the show and just maybe chuck a beer back. No, not really a beer for me, maybe a whiskey or a vodka. <laughs> but, you know, we just have a good time and, and get to know each other. Yeah, you're definitely you're definitely going to have some kind of alcohol that day and bad food for you. If you're there, you're eating some kind of bad food. I'm, I'm going to lock that in. So you guys, the listeners, can definitely follow up on that and make sure Nick eats unhealthy for that one day and drinks a little bit of alcohol. But look, today we're here to talk about the Giants. There's a lot I want to discuss here, Nick. I want to get to the Daniel Jones stuff last because it's going to be the bulk of this because there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and also, Greg Cassell had a lot of comments on other players on the Giants roster based on the film that I want to get to as well and on the scheme on both sides of the ball. So that's going to be the bulk of it because we love Cassell here, and I'd love to discuss his takes and get your take on it, Nick. But let's start with just a recap of Giants news since we last recorded. So they've worked out several players, and they've added several players. Where do you want to start there? And I'll chime in on, on, on anyone you talk about. Yeah, so the Giants, I think we could start with someone that they haven't signed yet, but there's a lot of speculation that he'll end up signing and that is Eric Ebron and I think we could start with him he's a 29 year old athletic tight end that back a while ago when he was drafted I remember Mel Kuyper and a lot of the big draft Knicks had the New York Giants selecting him in that specific draft it did not go that way he ended up going the Lions but I find it interesting because Daniel Bellinger just landed on the PUP so with Daniel Bellinger on the PUP and again he can come off the pup whenever it's not like in the season when he has to spend a specific amount of time on that list he can come off whenever but when you look at the Giants tight ends right now you have Ricky Seals Jones who we'll get into a little bit I look at Eric Ebron and I say there could be a place on this roster for someone like an Eric Ebron even though it is a similar type of skill set to Ricky Seals Jones I don't know where Jordan Akins is right now we'll learn a little bit more in camp about him but you look at the back and there's a lot of young guys here and I'm not 100% certain if they can make that final 53 men roster so depending on the severity of Bellinger's injury Eric Ebron could land in New York yeah so this one for me is a big one Nick I am a big believer of two things right now one the Giants tight end position is really bad it's really 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 bad like to me Ricky Seals Jones is the only potential guy they have ready to go in week one that's not going to be I don't want to say an abject disaster out there, but I kind of do, Nick, because I love Bellinger as a pro. I don't love. I like Bellinger as a prospect. Let's keep this in perspective, though. This is a fourth-round rookie coming from a non-power five. Expecting that type of player to come in and play 80 to 90% of the snaps at any kind of level that's respectable and not a negative, not a net negative on the field, it's a lot to ask for any fan of any team. Like We can be hopeful about every single pick we make. We can be hopeful about Bellinger because there are things to like, but I don't know if it's right away especially when he starts off on PUP. I just don't know that it's right away coming from that non-Power 5 school. So I need some kind of professional player that's ready to go week one and play against NFL-level competition, potentially set the edge against some of these defensive ends and know how to do it and know where to be and understand the language of the offense fast and quick and pick everything up fast from the speed standpoint of the jump going from, let's say, college to the NFL. 
And I need guys like that. And to me, Eric Ebron is a massive upgrade over anything they have on the roster right now. Is he a blocking tight end? No. But just like we talked about before this podcast, Nick, there are no one who's like that right now. There's like two guys. They're unicorns in the NFL. You're not going to find that right now, though. You know, Jared Cook is actually a decent blocker and he's also free agent. I don't think he's I just think he's going to retire and he's so old. Ebron's still under age of 30 can really offer in my mind what they're looking for at that tight end position. I think part of the reason they signed Ricky Seals Jones, and this dates back to what they did. I'm curious to get your take on this, Nick. Dates back to what they did in Buffalo with Dawson Knox is they're looking for a tight end who can play and have add a little bit of a vertical element to the offense. And we'll talk a little bit about this later with Seals Jones because it's something Greg Cosell brought up that really struck my, you know, it, it hit my mind and I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But I think they want to add this, you know, Running gun style offense, a lot of quick tempo, a mix of quick game, and then the vertical element. And to have that vertical element, you need guys on the field who can offer a vertical element. You rarely find that at the tight end position, but Ebron can offer that element. He's not the athlete he used to be, but he's not that far off. He's just coming off a year in a really dysfunctional offense. So to me, you sign him and he's immediately tight end one, and he immediately makes me feel so much better about what they're putting out there in week one. So I think to the Brian Dable point, the offense point, the Giants want to align in 11 personnel while also using a lot of spread concepts and kind of detaching that wide tight end and using him as a big slot. So you could basically be four wide and 11 personnel, but have someone athletic enough to still stretch the scene. That's something that Ricky Seals Jones can do. And that's something that Eric Ebron did well throughout his career, or at least solidly, I'll say. Right now, this is a 29-year-old, six foot four, 253-pound guy. Now, he's not over the hill quite yet, but the last time we saw him, he was playing through a knee injury, and that knee injury eventually landed him on the IR last season. But in 2020, he was targeted just under 100 times, had 63 catches for 620 yards and six touchdowns, had a couple pop games there. And universally, he was believed to be a bust after his years in Detroit, which was a pretty tumultuous place to play. But then he had that one year in 2018 with the Indianapolis Colts, where he had 14 touchdowns and over 800 yards receiving with over 120 targets and 74 catches. Pretty impressive stuff. Yeah, it was a couple of years ago, but he's been solid ever since. And if he does make this team, you have him and Ricky Seals-Jones. You can either have them battle it out or you can have them both make this roster and then just really use speed in the middle of the field. And it's going to force defenses to pay attention to those tight ends a little bit when you have these crazy playmakers on the outside and Kadarius, Tony and Wandale Robinson. And by the outside, I mean the number two spot in three by one set. So you can have Eric Ebron as that or Ricky Seals Jones as that number three. So I think it makes sense from that standpoint. I'm not hundred percent certain if it will happen. And I don't know if that knee injury was significant enough to, you know, really hinder his upside, but the reports are coming in that he was worked out and maybe we'll find out in the coming days if he'll be signed i do think a lot of it is contingent on daniel bellinger and his health though yeah it's a great point and i think ultimately what it comes down to is this if they feel like bellinger is not going to be based on not just the health just everything about being a rookie from the school he comes from and you know a day three pick they feel he's not ready to contribute on day one well now you have to or week one you have to think about what do we have right there, right? Like you said it best, Nick. They do want to. They're not going to run, come out and run tw- uh, ten personnel the whole the whole time. Ten personnel is still going to be very rarely used. No teams use it often. Eleven is going to be the base of this offense. The base of any good offense is eleven personnel. You don't want to go back to the McAdoo days of ninety-one percent or higher, but you do want to have a really two-thirds, maybe three-fourths of your snaps in it, right? And so there's going to be a tight end on the field for that. They 
They don't really have any kind of H-back that I think will take too many of the snaps in there, personally. So there's going to have to be one of these guys on the field. Can Ricky Seals-Jones play 100% of the snaps week one? I don't know if they want that to happen. So with that said, if Bellinger is not ready to play week one in their eyes or won't be ready or won't have made that transition, someone will be signed. I don't know if it will be Ebron because my guess is, this is not to say it won't be Nick, but my guess is that Ebron does have, him and his agent have a price point right? Like, I don't think Ebron comes to you. I don't think you come to Ebron and you say, here's the vet men, like they gave a Ricky Seals-Jones type. This is all you get. Take it. I don't think it's that situation. But at the same time, I do think there is a middle ground because what the Giants can offer Eric Ebron is a lot more than essentially any team right now. And that's playing time, that snaps, that's here's how you revive your career. You come into this run and shoot type offense, it's going to be up-tempo, we're going to be throwing a ton of a ton of percentage of our plays. And I know we both agree they'll run more than they did at Buffalo, but it's still going to be a heavy pass offense, pass first offense. And you give him a chance to get into a spot where he can carve out an actual role and see actual playing time snaps, not join some like you know team that already has two or three entrenched tight ends where he's playing just in the red zone and whatnot. And that's really the area where I'd be most excited about when it comes to Eric Ebron, Nick, it's the red zone. I think he can add an element to the Giants' red zone offense that they don't currently have. One of those big bodies. I mean, you have Kenny Galladay, obviously, and I think there'll probably be a lot of coverage focused on Kenny Galladay in these red zone situations. Hopefully he can recapture what he had back when he played with Detroit. But just to focus one more thing on the tight end situation, Daniel Bellinger, I think this team loves him, and I have high hopes for him. But even if he just misses a couple weeks at camp, man, that can really set him back. And the Giants could look at the situation if they don't love Jordan Akins and then be like, hey, we should probably sign Eric Ebron as insurance and then we can kind of play it, see see what happens and cut somebody when they have to cut down to the final 53 because it's just a very young group. You have a transitional wide receiver in Miller and then you have Austin Allen who is more of a developmental type of guy. So we're going to have to monitor that situation in the coming days and see what happens. Yeah, 100%. All right, let's talk about some of the other players. What are you, Blake Martinez, bro? (laughs) (laughs) What, with the 100%? Yeah, dude. I've always said 100%. I guess that's something Blake does as well. I've noticed that too. I'm a big 100% guy. I got to get it out of my repertoire. I had some new things in there maybe. No, it's all good, man. 100%. 100%. 100%. Yeah, but uh, anyway, let's talk about some of the other players that they actually signed, including not just the players they worked out. Because they added a player to the defensive line that now I think may ultimately – play a bigger role than people expected. We talked about that on the defensive line and, and edge pod podcast. Like, you know, how much how much depth do they have just with the defensive line after the big two? And now, you know, this might be, this is a player who might ultimately factor in in Nick Williams. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, they signed Nick Williams, and I think that was a, a pretty solid signing. And I haven't gotten to his film yet or Andrew Adams' film, but I remember one play Nick Williams did against the Minnesota Vikings and I think like around week 13 it was a two-point conversion and Nick Williams just stopped Alexander Madison at the line of scrimmage and from the little bit of film I've seen of Nick Williams and I have to do a lot more maybe I'll put like a Twitter uh, piece together of a lot of his good clips after I'm done with my film of him he uses his club swim move very well he has a good low stance a good low base He's not, you know, the most fleet of foot. This is somebody who is 32 years old. He's a defensive lineman around 300 pounds, but he anticipates the snap very well. And if he can really just penetrate gaps whenever the Giants do want to penetrate gaps with those big boys up on the defensive line, I feel like that club swim, it's something I've seen a couple different times work to his success. Now, if you don't land the club swim, you usually are left vulnerable because you go to club. And then if you're kind of going high as you do that, when you try to bring your inside arm over to swim and that leaves your chest exposed and a good offensive lineman can kind of really, you know, win the leverage battle, get underneath you and then lift you up. I saw that also a couple of times, but that's one of the weapons that just from the little bit of film I've watched on him, I've seen is, is that one move that he has success with. And there's room for Nick Williams on this roster. We talked about that too. When we broke down the defensive line, this guy can realistically make the team just because we don't know exactly how confident the New York Giants are on those back-end guys, the Christopher Hintons. They just left Jabari Ellis go. You have DJ Davids, and how comfortable are they with him? You love Dexter Lawrence and Lenny. You're not 100% sure what you can get out of Jelly, but he's a different type of player. So if Nick Williams has a really good camp, he could crack this roster. Yeah, and you know that, Nick. What do they need for this Wink Martindale defense? What do they not have? What do they need a little bit more of? That's those gap shooters, right, from the defensive line. They need someone who, you like you said, has a move already that works for him. It's quick. It's effective. It gets him downhill or uphill, depending on <laughs> what you want to call it. Let's just call it downhill. It's, it works both ways, but gets you into the gap and gets you moving forward toward the quarterback or toward the ball carrier for a tackle for a loss. I'm excited about this. I know it's such a low-key move, and I don't want to get too excited about an IDL, but this just goes to my theory, man. As I've been saying for the last 5, 10 years, for however long we've done the podcast, however long I've been commentating on, on, on the NFL, you can just find sneaky good contributors on the defensive line on the waiver wire. They did it with Austin Johnson. They did it with Mary Ed, Mario Edwards for that one season. They've been doing this forever, and it's not just the Giants. So many teams are able to do this. There's such a depth, depth across the NFL. And the thing about Nick Williams, if he does stick on this roster, Dan, he played 532 snaps in 2019, 537 in 2020 with Detroit, and then 622 last year with Detroit. He's not getting that snap share here in New York. He's going to be a bit player, keep him more fresh. And in those situations when you need him to penetrate the gaps, you could possibly put him in. It could also be like that second team IDL who can spell Dexter Lawrence sometimes. He's not going to see too many snaps so hopefully he can keep fresh he's going to need that too because he's 32 and a half years old yeah exactly you nailed it nick all right let's talk about any other signings let's talk about the players placed on the pup and the players not placed on the pup to start training camp because to me and nick that's a big deal more so than anything else look we want these guys practicing it for not just the you know the installs of the ot's we want them for now it's training camp it starts tomorrow or today depending on when you're listening to this you need all the reps you can get. And the fact that a lot of these guys that we thought might start on the pup are not actually starting on the pup is big news. So let's get into all of that. Yeah. So they also signed Andrew Adams, Super Bowl champion Andrew Adams, former New York Giant 
Andrew Adams, who was still south of 30 years old at 29. And when he was with New York, man, I didn't think he was terrible for this dude who was what undrafted in 2016 out of Connecticut. He's not the biggest type of guy, but I like the fact that they brought him in, give him a chance. He might not ultimately make the roster, but I like this move as just a low, no cost type of signing. Somebody who is a veteran who is from a winning culture, bring him in and hopefully you can find some sort of situational player who can pitch in on special teams. So I do appreciate this Andrew Adams signing by the New York Giants to help bolster the safety position. Yeah, I'm with you on Adams. Adams is a player who, when he was with the Giants, I wasn't watching as much film. That wasn't a focus of mine. I wasn't even really covering the team the same way. But I just remember him as a player who was always around the ball at the right time, in the right, you know, in the right spot, in the right time. Good ball, had a good eye for the ball, good nose for the ball, as they call it. And I like the fact that you know he's coming from a roster that not only has a winning culture, but more importantly, had just so much depth and talent at the safety position that it's easy for a player like Adams to kind of get buried in that and he moves on and it's like, oh, is he washed? Well, no, maybe he's not washed. Maybe he just couldn't beat out the immense amount of talent that he was competing against. Well, guess what? That's not going to be the case with the Giants. There are a lot of guys that are interesting to me in this in this safety group. I really like Yusuf Corker. I want him to have a really big camp. But ultimately, outside of McKinney, it's pretty damn wide open, right? Like we think Love will play some kind of role this year. We hope Love can step into that. But I think even he could end up getting ultimately rotated in certain spots for a player like Adams or whoever steps up within training camp of the preseason. So adding talent to this position and competition to this position is definitely a good thing. Definitely is. And he's also somebody who has played a multitude of different positions on the back end. He's played single eye. He's played the deep path, played the post. He's done all of those things for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and Todd Bowles, versatile, aggressive type of defense, similar to Wink Martindale, obviously not the exact same thing. And then same with Nick Williams. He's played one, he's played nose a little bit, he's played some three techniques. So those guys are versatile enough to possibly earn a spot, but there's still a lot of work for them to do. The Giants also signed Marcus Kemp, who is a wide receiver, who was with the Kansas City Chiefs. This is somebody who is 26 years old, but he's a big body dude. He's like 6'4", 210 pounds. He was undrafted in 2017 out of Hawaii. He only has four catches in his career. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he was coming off of an injury that he suffered with the Miami Dolphins or no, it might've been with the Kansas city chiefs. And then he signed with the dolphins and then the dolphins kind of put him on the practice squad, bounced around from the practice squad between the dolphins and the chiefs. And now he's going to possibly try to earn a spot here, but it's pretty deep. The New York giants are at the wide receiver position. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. They have a, it's always deep at the wide receiver position, but he's definitely, you know, performing at a disadvantage just given even guys like the David Sills of the world who have some kind of rapport with the quarterback, some kind of rapport with the with the with the inside the building, things of that nature. So I agree with you on that. We'll see what happens there, Nick. The Giants also signed an offensive tackle, Kamal Seymour. I don't have anything to really report on that. We know the Giants are pretty deep on the offensive line, but I just wanted to kind of put his name out there. And they also signed a cornerback, and this was before they kind of signed this new wave of veterans. It was Gavin Heslop, I believe is how you say it. He signed in last week. This is somebody who played like four snaps for Seattle against the Houston Texans. Then he ended up, I think, tearing his ACL. He had a serious lower leg injury, but somebody who was athletic. I believe he went to Stony Brook, so he's a local kid. He's going to come in and compete and corresponding moves the New York Giants released Henry Black who was a safety was with the Packers last year Jabari Ellis Maurice Kennedy who we've talked about a little bit and Travis Toivainen there you go those are a lot of names and I think you know what's interesting I saw a tweet from a Giants fan in in Charlotte who talked about just listening to he's always so locked in on a lot of the exact stuff Nick yeah. which I love because I get good t- t- uh, inv- info tidbits 
or what information tidbits from from Giants fan in Connecticut. And he Charlotte. Damn, I went back to the Connecticut. Holy <laughs> crap. And I just said Charlotte earlier. Every time I read that, it's Connecticut to me, even though it's obviously CLT. That's not a Connecticut. Anyway, he was talking about Ed Triggs and just the difference, the difference in kind of the changeover there in the front office. And I don't want to misquote him, so, I, so I'm just going to kind of paraphrase here. But they were talking about how one of the big changes, the Giants are going to really grind the waiver wire on a daily basis. And they discuss just the, the value of that ability to, to grind the wire. And we're seeing that already start to come to fruition with these signings, with working out players like uh, Eric Ebron, even with the you know reunion of an Andrew Adams type. So I'll be interested to watch that as it moves forward because I think that is going to be a thing. Like They're going to grind the wire for the next 30 days or so or until we get to the, you know 40 days until September 11th. And it's going to be part of what they're doing. Like There's going to be a lot of movement on the back end. It's not necessary, especially when you have a roster like this. This is a changeover in the, in, you know, in the, what's it called, in the regime. And there's a, a lot of holdovers from the last regime. Well, that means a lot of those back-end guys, maybe they're not in the same kind of spot. They're, they're in a more tenuous roster position than they were with the old regime. Well, when you grind the wire, you may find guys you like more. Exactly. Tom Coughlin heavily influenced this guy's career. And if you know anything about Coughlin or you read anything about the New York Giants back when he was just a wide receivers coach when they were winning Super Bowls under Bill Parcells, Tom Coughlin like never left the office. So I'm sure Triggs has this insatiable type of work ethic, and that's what you need in a role like this. These little moves like that that the New York Giants did, I hopefully should alter the entire culture of this franchise. And, and that's what we're all hoping for right now. But hopefully Ed Triggs has a really big influence on the Giants moving forward. Yeah, Nick, and just to clarify what Giants fan and CLT did say, it was a cool, it was a clip from the Giants huddle interview where Ed Triggs said Chris, Chris Rossetti, director of pro scouting for the Giants, has opened his eyes to, among other things, again, the workout process, the importance of working out these players, and then grinding that waiver wire every day. But I love to hear it, Nick. Like you said, it's a it's another just again, it's such a slow, steady drum beat that's been going on, in my opinion, since the day Joe Shane was hired. But and I don't want to sound like a total homer here, but it really does feel like that slow, steady drumbeat of things moving in the right direction. Giants making these types of moves that the good rosters do, that the good franchises do. And it's going to lead to, obviously it's the NFL. You need to find a quarterback. You need to get good play out of that. But you also need to get all these other things right to compete on a day-to-day basis and to have that functional franchise in place for when you do find the quarterback, because you still need that. There's been times you've teams have found quarterbacks and have ruined them, things of that nature. So to get to where like a team like the Ravens are at from a process standpoint, from a regime standpoint, you need to make all these right decisions. And I really do feel like the Giants are moving in that direction. I really hope so, man. And I'm optimistic about it as well. For sure. All right, Nick, let's talk about start a camp. I want to talk about a few things before we talk about three things that we're most hopeful for. Again, not what we expect to see, not what we think we're going to see. Those things we're hopeful for, as almost like a fan standpoint type thing. I want to talk about the players placed on the PUP list. Any surprises there? And any surprises on the players not placed on PUP? Yeah, so Giants placed Aziz Ojolari on the non-football injury list, which kind of sucks because he's not – I don't know how much he's going to miss, but he's – that's you never want to hear that from one of your young players. And I think it's more so the Giants are just being overly cautious with this second-year player who put on a lot of weight – I believe he tweaked his hamstring. That's what it is right now. It's something to monitor. I'm not going to, you know, be frightened over it right now as a Giants fan and somebody who covers the Giants, but it's never a great sign. So that's one thing that I feel like kind of sucks right now. And then uh, in terms of the players who were put on the PUP list, I believe it's Nick Gates, Matt Parrott, Daniel Bellinger, as we said, and then Sterling Shepard. Yeah. And so and let's start. Darius Williams as well. Sorry. Yeah. 
And let's start with, and then obviously, you know, you 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 hinted at it, but there's a lot of big t- like Kadarius Tony free, right? We're gonna get a full camp at least as far as it starts off. We don't know if he'll get hurt again. We hope he won't, but. To start off camp, not in that red jersey and practicing with that first team, that is so important to me. Kayvon Thibodeau, who was in the red jersey for so much of OTAs, so important to me to get him with that first team defense right away. Those two are the big, big, big time ones for me. Um, And then obviously the biggest one, which is Andrew Thomas. There was rumors, reports about him walking with a limp in OTAs. There was some some stuff from doctors, Twitter doctors, I want to call them because that's what they are. They're, they're real doctors, but they don't really see these. Like, it's always funny to me when the Twitter doctors make these comments because, like, nobody really fact checks them, right, Nick? And, and like, I'm not just not saying they're, like, wrong or they should be right 100% of the time, but they don't see these players every day. They're not working with them in the training room. They're not tending to them. They're just basing it off of, like, video that they see online of the injury and, their, and the history of these injuries. But every injury impacts every player differently. Anyway, I digress. The point is, Andrew Thomas going to start the seat, start training camp for us, practicing with that first team, which is big because we saw so much of a Zudu. But what I really want to start he- uh, here with Nick is the Aziz injury because you touched on that. It's a little tricky for me, Nick, because I'm a little worried about it because it's a soft tissue. Soft tissues always scare the hell out of me. Hamstring, it's just there's such a chance of re-injury if you rush back. There's a chance of compensation type injuries when you have those hamstring soft tissue type stuff. Do you think this one's going to be one where the Giants are going to just be like, look, let's play this smart? Because they played it smart. Like, remember Odell's injury during his rookie camp? They didn't play him all camp, and they waited all the way to week four, and then he played a whole season for the Giants. I almost feel like it's it's better long term and, you know, for the season being if they just play it really slow with him. Because, yes, it's a new defense, but at least he has some NFL snaps under his belt. Absolutely. And yes, it is a new defense. And I do think on field reps, even against your own offense are very, very important. They're crucial, but paramount is your health. You need to take care of your health. So I like the approach of just, just being very, very conservative here. Very, very cautious. I would imagine a lot of teams would do the same in this type of situation. Everybody is saying that with rest, he should make a full recovery, but you're right. Notoriously, hamstring injuries are very, very tricky. So just allow him to get healthy, and then we can see him on the field later in training camp or preseason or even week one if that's what it takes. Yeah, I'm good with that too, by the way, Nick. I know a lot of people will be skeptical of that, but if it takes that long to get him fully just not feeling it at all when he's practicing, not feeling any hinge, any anything in there, any, any little bit, well, then I think that's the right play there for sure, just based on, like you said, the nature of the injury. But how about Andrew Thomas, Canarius, Tony, and Kayvon Thibodeau all ready to go, ripping and roaring for that first day? And Kenny Galladay, too. And Galladay, yeah. Wow. Awesome. Yeah, because they spent most of the spring in those red jerseys, and some people, there was a lot of speculation that Andrew Thomas and Kayvon Thibodeau even possibly could end up on the pup. They avoided the pup list. That's excellent. We'll see them out there. I don't know... Who- if they'll be practicing in full or or what exactly is going to happen with that. But the fact that they avoided the pup list and they're healthy enough to even dress for week one is excellent news. And the one I was the most worried about was Andrew Thomas. Again, we said on the podcast, it's nothing to really freak out over, but we have to just wait and see, take it day by day. seems like he's healthy enough to at least go out there. So let's hope there's no more injuries and no more re-aggravations or anything like that. Yep, 100% agree with you on that. And we'll see how it goes with the, with a lot of these guys. Obviously, you know, they're going to take it slow, I think. Even, like, if there's any kind of chance of injury, as we saw in OTAs with Kayvon Thibodeau, which is, like, probably the most minor injury ever, and it kept him out, <coughs> excuse me, for all for basically the remainder of those OTAs, 
we'll get that. I don't think we're in the clear for that, Nick. Like, I think we'll have some frustrating moments where, you know, we're following along and these guys just aren't practicing because they're taking it super cautiously. But that's okay. It's it's, it's part of the process, part of the new regime, and I'm, I'm personally okay with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Health is going to be the number one thing. And I, I know last year with Joe Judge, they they took a really conservative stance on on health to the point where like nobody played in preseason, which didn't end up really working out for the New York Giants all that well. But you need to take care of your guys and you want to be smart about this. And, and they will learn the offense in the, in the meeting room and then hopefully get healthy enough to go on the field. I do not want to rush Aziz Ojolari back. And in terms of Andrew Thomas, I'm just glad that they're able to get him out there because if he wasn't ready, they would do the same thing that they just did to Aziz Ojolari. And I wonder how that will ultimately impact Josh Azudu, who was seeing a lot of those snaps and OTAs at the left tackle position because they just didn't have anyone to play there because Barrett, obviously, on the, on the PUB, he's not healthy. So, And then you know they have some some other guys that they could put out there, Gano, like just guys that are like, eh. But, you know, they, they <laughs> went with, I mean, that's the truth of it, right? But they went with Azudu because they felt like, you know what? And and we'll get to this because Cassell had some comments on Azudu. But I'll say this. he did. I know he's not ideal for it, but he played left tackle in college, had some decent snaps there, some really good ones, honestly, as you alluded to when you did your field breakdown. Greg Cassell thinks he could play out there. He should be. He should be a guard. We'll get to this, but he can. And the Giants obviously feel like, at the very least, he can play out there. So he's a really interesting prospect to me. If they feel like he can play out there in a pinch, that's obviously not ideal. You don't want him out there. But also, obviously, projects to be their guard at some point. It's a nice, it's a nice, like, it's a nice thing to have, personally. It's a nice thing to have. I liked Zudu's tape a lot better at guard than yeah. at tackle. But the fact that he could literally just be like, oh, I'm playing guard this snap. Eh, I'll play tackle now <laughs> and adjust it and not look like a complete mess is pretty damn impressive. I just love the fact that you can have somebody that athletic inside. And if you want to pull them to the outside as a backside guard lead blocking like that dude, can, can yeah. he can really move well and he can locate and he can run downfield. And it, it's going to be fun to watch whenever he gets fully up to speed and takes over a starting job. 100%. We're going to talk about that because that's one of the low-key upside things for the Giants this year. There's a lot of upside things that they can have. McKinney taking another step. Aziz taking another step. An upside thing is Azudu making it to that lineup and playing at a level where he has to be in the lineup. That's a big-time upside thing for the Giants at, at, as soon as this season, really. Um, so let's dive into let's, – let's, let's transition now. Let's talk a little bit about this Daniel Jones thing that we alluded to the beginning – and we had talk a lot about Jones, but that's obvious. He's the quarterback. So I want to start with what we'll talk about a little bit less, Nick. And that's this piece from The Athletic, which essentially tried to, at least attempted to, sort all these quarterbacks by tiers. And obviously the big you know, media clip from it was what they said about Lamar Jackson. The NFL coaches, who are obviously not very high on Lamar Jackson, said he'll never be a tier one quarterback. You, know, you can never count on him in the playoffs, things of that nature. But one of the factors that also went down in this was the evaluation of Daniel Jones, who I'm getting the numbers up now, so give me one quick second. But Daniel Jones was ranked as the 30th overall quarterback, according to, again, these are NFL coaches and executives. So it's a poll of 50 different NFL coaches and executives. They ranked Daniel Jones 30th overall as a tier four quarterback. For context, Geno Smith was ranked 35th overall. Now, this goes back to, Nick, what we talk about a lot. The perception of Daniel Jones to us, to Giants fans, to Giants Twitter, to Giants analysts, to color commentators that cover the Giants, 
to Giants.com commentators is very, very different than what it is for thir- teams that are f- for analysts and coaches now that we learn this and executives of the 31 other teams that aren't seeing this every day and aren't in this every day. And to be quite honest, these 50 NFL execs and coaches are not fans of what they saw from Daniel Jones, right? They ranked him 30th overall. That's really, really bad. And there's no bias here. These aren't like anti-New York guys. These aren't guys who are like, I hate Daniel Jones. These are just literally a random poll. They have opinions of all the quarterbacks and their opinions of Jones are not high. So let's talk about what some of the things were said. One NFL defensive coach said Jones holds the ball for too long. It leads to turnovers. I don't think he sees the game great. I just don't see it with this kid. Another NFL coach says Daniel Jones plays the game heavy-minded. So these are from one defensive coach, and the other one, the heavy-minded comment was from an actual head coach of one of the 31 other teams. Now, I've never heard the term heavy-minded used to describe a quarterback's play, Nick, but I find it really interesting and potentially enlightening because that does seem to be jive a little bit with what I've seen from Jones, right? It is kind of a heavy, heavy-minded play. He really just like, and he sits in that pocket, and he and it's very, he does, he's processing all these different things at once, and none of it really seems to come that naturally or simply for him. Another NFL offensive coach said, he didn't have enough come, reps coming out of Duke. This will be his last season. He is a starter, and last season we're talking about him. There were also some positive comments I want to talk about, Nick, despite the bad ranking. One NFL defensive coach said, he has talent, he can obviously run, and he has an okay arm. Another coach said, Daniel Jones will benefit from creativity that Dable brings to the offense. And then a talent evaluator, so a scout for one of the teams, says his best hope is going somewhere else. There's enough talent there, enough intangibles there, and he has certainly proven his physical toughness. He's professional, he is professional, he is tough, and he is respected in the locker room because of his phys- because of the toughness. What are your thoughts on any or all of these comments? I'm imagining that somewhere else common must like the, I wonder if Mike Sando pulled people before the end of the season because it's basically like Daniel Jones is somewhere else right now with the new regime that is in place, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, so I, I'm a little curious as to that one. But in terms of all the comments, I'm not shocked by Daniel Jones hasn't proven anything at a consistent level. I I see talent in Daniel Jones. I don't see consistency. The heavy-minded comment I do believe is is pretty enlightening because there are times where you can see him struggle to get from one read to another, holds onto the football a little bit too long. I think the offense, as I've said several times, definitely held him back. The offensive line definitely held him back, but he's still not doing some little things that can make you be certain that he's that guy. Right. Like you watch Justin Herbert and I think Justin Herbert has had a better coaching staff around him than Daniel Jones has the offensive line in Justin Herbert's first year. I don't know if it was to the level of the 2021 Giants, probably not, but it still wasn't great. But you just see it with him. You know, you just see how he plays. You see the ball come out of his hands. You see how quick he is processing. You see the things he does and you're like, oh, okay, I get it. And you see the mistakes he makes and you're like, oh, I understand what he's trying to do in that situation. You know, it was just a great play by that safety or something like that, you know? So you don't necessarily see that with Daniel Jones, not at least at a consistent level. I don't know if Daniel Jones is ever going to be quote unquote, the guy. I think he can be a starting quarterback in the league. I don't know if he could be that guy who you can ride in the playoffs. He hasn't proven that yet. That is with the fact that yes, he hasn't had the best situation. I, I get that still. There are situations that he's been in where he hasn't risen to the occasion. 
And that's what I hope to see this year, Dan. I hope to see, you know, Giants are down by four points. They need a touchdown, two-minute drill, and Daniel Jones puts the team on his back and leaves the team down and wins the football game. We need to see that from this kid, and we just really haven't seen that on a consistent level at all. Yeah, and that's that's been the that's always what me and Nick go back to. We see some flashes from Jones, but the consistency, that's the biggest issue with Jones's game always has been. When you boil it down, I'm I'm obviously not talking about specifics, right? There are issues from a trade space standpoint that we've we've gone on, we discussed in depth. We don't need to go back over. He's not a great thrower off platform. He has a slow processing post snap. But as far as the overall way to look at this thing, the general view is consistency, right? Like it doesn't matter the specific traits and the why and the what. It's the it's the hat or the why and the how. It's it's the what. The what is he's not he has not been consistent enough. He had a nice consistent stretch for the Giants last year during that stretch where that ended in the Saints game. It was a few really good games, pretty good, pretty damn good games in a row. Some I thought were held back by the coaching, to be completely honest. Thought he threw well in that Atlanta game, was completely held back by conservative coaching. Thought he threw well in the Washington game, was completely held back in the final drive after the Bradbury interception by a pathetic, I'll call that not conservative, pathetic coaching right there by Garrett and Judge. Look, this is a valid excuse and this is real. But at the same time, some of the stuff, man, that that they say, it, it really does appear on tape, holds on to the ball too long. Every Giants fan says that. Even the Homer Daniel Jones fans say that he holds on to the ball too long. And he says that, and this coach said that leads to the turnovers. And that's true, man, because look, when you're holding the ball too long and you're locking onto that first read, by the time you have to come off that and you're trying to make a throw, you're late on your throw. And that's the late throws are the ones that lead to the most interceptions. Also, you're going to lead to potential fumbles, forced fumble sacks when you're holding onto the ball too long. Both of those things are true. And as far as I don't think he sees the game great, that's something me and Nick, you have discussed. You just went over. It'll be interesting when we discuss what Cosell says because he has a different take on this, and I'm curious to get your take on his take. Um, the heavy-minded thing is just so interesting to me because it does feel like a lot of it is very overwhelming for him, which is not to say he's not a, he is a smart guy. It's just I think it goes back to what the NFL offensive coach said here. He just simply didn't have enough reps coming out. He played a lot of games for Duke, but they were crappy reps in my opinion, Nick, because they were just coming from that so simplistic offense that Cutcliffe ran. It just didn't prepare him, in my mind, at all for what he did at the NFL level. Yeah, Shermer came in and said, look, we'll simplify this thing by just giving you half-field reads, and that's great. It worked for a little while. But how long can you sustain that? And he just, as far as just the full-field stuff and being an NFL-level read quarterback, he just didn't have the reps, and he's still trying to get those. So I think all this is pretty fair, to be completely honest with you. Though, again, like you said, Nick, there is still hope because the flashes are still there. Yeah, there's flashes, and I did a whole breakdown for Big Blue View about a month ago about Daniel Jones. I dove into some of his ugly plays and a lot of his good plays because, like, like I said on previous podcasts, I feel like he makes more good plays than he does bad plays. I don't feel like he is just a terrible quarterback. It's just, can he be good enough to lead you to the playoffs and lead you to the Super Bowl? Does he rise to the occasion in these pivotal points? And the answer to those questions is he hasn't proven that whatsoever. And that's the big issue. I mean, Daniel Jones came into the league, Dan, and his biggest issue was, wow, this guy turns the football over at an alarming rate. He had a ton of turnover-worthy plays in his rookie season. He was a rookie. He fumbled the football a lot. And then there was turnover. Pat Shermer was gone. And then they bring in this just Joe Judge and Jason Garrett who were just like, our main focus is to <laughs> limit the turnovers. They did the Dave Gettleman voice as Dan Schneier would term it. And they limited the turnovers, but in doing so, they completely hamstrung Daniel Jones' development and completely just hamstrung the entire offense. And I think that 
could be a, just a huge detriment to the rest of Daniel Jones' career here in New York unless it can be unlocked by Brian Dable, which we're all hopeful for. But it's hard to sit here and realistically say, yeah, Daniel Jones is an above-average quarterback or he's this and he's that because we haven't seen that at a consistent level at all. So I don't even know how we could have that opinion. I do like the the, the flashes, like you said. I think they are there, but now he needs to prove it and put it on the freaking football field for you know a healthy 17-game season. Yep, and you freaking nailed this one, Nick. Um, and so we'll, we'll see what happens there. But I do want to now contrast that because I want to talk about what Greg Cosell said about Daniel Jones and then a lot of things about the Giants in general. So we're going to start with what he said about Jones just because we're already on this. It's a very different outlook than what we just heard from these NFL coaches and execs. And I think that's interesting, to be completely honest. So let's start with his thoughts on Daniel Jones. So what he said about Daniel Jones, and part of the issue for him with Jones is he felt like this was a lot to do with the coaching, right? He said from things that he's heard, this is what Greg Cosell said, from things that he's heard from people around the Giants in the NFL, this guy's obviously insanely connected, Greg Cosell. He said it was a really tough environment for any quarterback because, and really for all the players, because you couldn't really make a single mistake. Judge would go crazy if you made any kind of mistake. And he basically said that it got to the point where it was almost like, and this was a Cosell quote, if you weren't, it was almost like you weren't allowed to make a mistake. And this is just a total contrast to what Brian Dable has already said he's going to do. He said the complete opposite of this. Let him free. Let him loose. See the things he can do well. That's going to mean making mistakes. That's okay. What are your thoughts on this before we get into Jones? How much of an impact can that have on a quarterback when, the, when a coach is as gung-ho and strict as Judge was about simply never making a mistake? Oh, it makes a huge impact. The offense and I guess the head coach as well on Joe Judge really hamstrung Daniel Jones because their main philosophy was to limit those turnover-worthy plays that he had so much back in his rookie season of 2019. So when you're sitting there, you're like, I can't make a mistake. I can't make a mistake. You're not going to try to challenge the defense. You're going to be way too conservative, and you're going to go with those checkdowns and those simple little snag routes instead of maybe pressing the ball vertically. That's something Daniel Jones does pretty well is press the damn ball vertically. So hopefully we see a little bit more of that. But, yeah, that definitely tracks. Yeah, it definitely does track, and it's really interesting because, you know, I, I really do believe that Joe Judge was a much, much worse coach both short and long-term than people realize. There was a lot of celebration for him last offseason. I wasn't among those celebrating him. I, I was skeptical. I was not down on him, so I wasn't like that that far, but I was skeptical, and I didn't want to celebrate beating those backup quarterbacks like they did in that stretch run of 2020, most of whom are either backups in the NFL now or out of the NFL. That's how bad they are. Um, and, and, it, and it proved to be true. Look, the environment he created for the Giants was not a winning environment. People can say the Patriots have done something similar, and it's worked. I haven't heard these kind of stories about Bill Belichick. I haven't heard your people are afraid to make mistakes and it's so tense around the building and you have your quarterback just like, nope, you can't throw an interception. If you even come close to making a turnover worthy play, you know, that type of thing. And so getting out of that, it feels like Jones is just taking the restraints off. Like there's been a lot of excuses made for Daniel Jones by fans who are believers in him. This one to me rings the truest, Nick. Out of all the excuses I've heard, I would say this one has the most validity to it. Absolutely. It strikes at the foundation of the offensive identity that you're running. That's exactly what the foundation was. Don't make a mistake. 
don't make a mistake. And then Daniel Jones is out there like, I, I can't make a mistake. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. and, and it's not like I want him to make mistakes now with Brian Dable, but I want him to play comfortably in his own skin. And if mistakes happen, they happen. Similar to like Andrew Luck, man. Andrew Luck back in the day, that guy would throw interceptions, but it's because he was challenging the defense downfield. And that made the defense respect Andrew Luck. I don't find many defenses that respect Daniel Jones. Now, some of that is on him, but some of it is also on the offensive identity. So hopefully with a better offensive identity, we'll get more respect for Daniel Jones because Daniel Jones will take advantage of opportunities. But then that, that's a whole other conversation. Can he take advantage consistently of those opportunities? Has to prove that. For sure. Now let's talk about some of the specifics Cosell said from the film he watched of Daniel Jones. So I want to start by saying that he started the podcast. This is, by the way, if anyone wants to listen to it, you can find it on Inside the Birds. It's an Eagles podcast, but sometimes they do like NFC stuff. And it's Greg Cassell's on it a lot. So there's honestly probably really good episodes that I just Who's the host of it? Um, I'm not actually sure. Is that Fran Duffy? <laughs> it is Duffy. Though. I think it's Duffy and one other guy. Yeah, it's great stuff. I mean, they get Cassell on and that's not, it's like, he's the, he's the main star, obviously. He's the film guru, but that Duffy's great too. So, I mean, great. Just if you like X's and O's, take a listen, whatever. But he, he said, I recently went back and I watched a lot of Jones. That's what he said. That's the start of this. So I know it's based on, you know, the film he's seen. And look, he said this, Nick, which I'm very curious to get your take on because it's not, it doesn't exactly jive with what me and you have talked about on this podcast based on what we've seen on the film. It's a little bit different. So I'm curious to get your take. He says, at his core, Daniel Jones is a pocket quarterback playing his best when he's on time and in rhythm. Now, that's something we agree with. I'm not talking about that part. Me and you have both made the case for a while that Daniel Jones wants to succeed. It's going to be within the pocket. I know he has great athleticism. People always talk about it, but he's more of a design runner to me. He's not really a throw-on-the-run type. He's definitely not a throw-on-the-run type quarterback. Um, but what Cassell said that was struck me as so interesting is he showed it on third downs. That's what Cassell really liked about his film. He said he was poised in the pocket. He read coverage on third downs, and he knew where to go with the ball on third downs. He said he was efficient and decisive with his reads. He kept going back to that. He said he was decisive with these reads. And he says, when you watch Jones's tape, you really do feel like there's something to work with, and we can make this guy, and he said, not only a starting quarterback, a good quarterback. He said he's. He said he went back and forth between good decision maker and decisive, but he kept saying he knows where to go with the ball. He said his arm's fine, it's not a hose, but he has enough mobility within that. What are your thoughts on his how high Cassell was on Jones on third down specifically and on his decisiveness? Yeah, I'm trying to go through some third downs in my head. I mean, he had some that were really, really, you know, big time moments. I believe that touchdown to Evan Ingram against the Kansas City Chiefs, which is which was in a pretty high leverage situation. That was on a third down. He had some really nice plays against Washington early in the season against the Falcons on third down. A lot of those, I think, came with his legs, if I'm not mistaken. And I don't have the plays in front of me. But there were times, and a lot of the times it was, you know, third and four, third and five, third and intermediate, where I felt like Daniel Jones did a pretty solid job on third downs. Now, in terms of his decisiveness, I think when that first read was taken away, there were times where he would hold on to that football a little bit too long. I think he's decisive when he believes the defense is doing one thing and he needs to get rid of the football and that thing checked out post snap. Then I feel like, yeah, he's decisive. Hits that back foot, fires the football, complete pass, move the chains, hopefully. But that first read wasn't there. If it's not a too high and it's, you know, and it's a single high and then someone's coming on the blitz and he thought it was going to be a four man pressure ends up being a five or six man pressure. That's where I feel like Daniel Jones gets in trouble a little bit. And I wouldn't say he's as decisive as maybe Greg Cassell is saying, but there are definitely elements of his game where Daniel Jones can be decisive. And I think a lot of it kind of is when his pre to post snap diagnosis materializes and comes true. But 
when pressure gets in, implemented and he doesn't expect it, there are troubles. But I did say, at least last year, we, we talked about a little bit. I remember against the Rams, there was a time where he was caught and the protection didn't pick up like a nickelback who came off the weak side. Daniel Jones did a great job seeing it out of his periphs and just firing Saquon Barkley hot. Saquon Barkley picked up a couple yards. I believe it was Barkley. might have been Booker. But anyways, I felt like that was a pretty good place. So it's something I felt like he's coming along with a little bit. But there's definitely room for growth there. Yeah, I think, you know, we've been pretty consistent with it. It is interesting to hear another perspective on it. I wonder how much of it, because this is one thing he wasn't specific on, Nick. I wonder how much of it was Cassell watched tape from 2020, 2021, and 2019 on these third downs. Because I do think Daniel Jones was a much better third down processor, thrower, and an overall quarterback in 2020 versus 2021. Things just went so wrong last season from the coaching standpoint, from the offensive line standpoint, and mostly from just injuries, the wide receiver position, it's the constant, you know, flooding by Jason Garrett of those, those stick routes with players like Evan Ingram. But in 2020, I did feel like he made progress there. And even at times, especially during that torrid stretch he had, I don't want to use the word torrid. It's probably a little bit of an exaggeration, but that hot stretch he had, that four game stretch, concluding with that Saints game, where he really made some awesome third down reads really great decisive throws we talked about a, a while ago that throw he made to Kenny Galladay that second level read he made uh had, had a couple really good reads the one on the sideline to Galladay later in the game just can do it that's the thing he flashes the this ability that Cassell's talking about like you said it's just a lot of times it's just about the consistency with Daniel Jones because we have to see it for longer stretches in just four games. We need to see it for eight to ten games in a row or, you know, eight out of ten games, something like that. And so the one thing I, I, I um, that I want to talk about on the flip side of this from Cassell, because he said, you know, all those positive things. He also said one thing that Daniel Jones needs to work on, Nick, and he said this, Cassell, this is his opinion as an NFL evaluator based on the film. He said this may or may not happen at this point of his career. So just keep that in mind. There's a chance this does not improve, but it's something he has to work on. And that was subtle or nuanced. He called it subtle and nuanced movement within the pocket. He says, if you want to be a quarterback who at your core is a pocket passer. Remember, earlier he led with Daniel Jones at his core has to be a pocket passer. We also know this as evaluators and fans. Daniel Jones has struggled when he's been asked to move off platform and throw off platform on a move. Daniel Jones is not really a great thrower from outside the pocket when his shoulders aren't squared. He said if he wants to be a really good uh, pocket passer at his core, he needs to work on his nuanced movement. This is something I refer to often on this podcast, uh, Nick, is pocket manipulation. And this is something that I do believe Daniel Jones really struggles with. And it's one of the reasons he's put up bad numbers so far. It's one of, For me, it's one of the key reasons. It's just that ability to reset the pocket. It, it's basically what Breeze and Brady do so well, so damn well. Reset the pocket be very calm within that pocket, manipulate it, and kind of read your blocks, read the pass rush, and get to spots within the play that buy you extra time. I think that's very important. I wanted to bring up one thing, though, because I found this stat. So Daniel Jones' completion percentage last year was 64%, and on third down, it was 53% with the blitz and 57% without a blitz. I came across that stat a while ago. That's on third down. So it's a little bit less than what it would be. But again, the defenses are really dialing it up. So I just kind of wanted to throw that out there just for statistical purposes. And in terms of his pocket maneuverability, I would agree. But I want to say, I think we've brought this up last year. And I think it's important. I think he gotten better with that. 
looking back at 2019 and 2020, I think 2021, he did a little bit of a better job not rolling to his right, which was definitely an issue of his early in his career. We saw it a little bit last year too, but there were games where he did step up into the pocket. But yes, I do believe it's something he can definitely get better at. But a lot of that also is kind of dependent on the offensive line in a way. Like, I don't know how comfortable he was in the offensive line. I don't want to make too many excuses for Daniel Jones, but you are talking about a young quarterback who has just been nailed a lot throughout his career has been dinged up and who has been injured. And then maybe if he had a more stable offensive line, he would have been able to be a little bit more confident with his ability to maneuver the pocket. But that doesn't really, I guess, excuse the fact that he doesn't do it super well. It's just kind of excuse the fact that he hasn't maybe developed as much as we want him to in that area. So I guess, I mean, I do definitely agree with what Greg is saying in that point, but I do think he got a little bit better with it last year. Do you, do you agree with that? I a hundred percent agree with that. I really do think and that's what goes back to, you know, what he said is like at this point in his career, it may, it may not happen. I ultimately feel like that is not based on like, okay, for example, I think when it comes to processing post-snap uh, to me, that debate rages on. Is that something you can teach and learn or is that natural? That debate to me is wide open and I lean toward it's natural. But this one, as far as can you improve this this late in your career, I almost lean toward it's not all natural. It's something you can actually improve with work, with time, with with reps, with feeling better about your offensive line, right? Even just something, <laughs> no, but something as simple as that. Like you snap the ball, you get the you, you know, you call you call the play, you snap the ball, you get the ball, and you're not immediately looking down at your guard because he's blowing a a, a stunt. Will Hernandez, ahem, Will Hernandez. You're not immediately looking at Billy Price being like thrown four yards back because he's so off balance weirdly every snap <laughs> weirdly that's a great weirdly way to put balance. it he's just watching that film was weird he was weirdly off balance a lot billy Price, and like just that could help him alone so i do think that one this can be improved i don't necessarily agree with 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 Cassell saying and he didn't say it can't be he said it may or may not happen at this point and i do think he made big strides in that last year not full that's the thing there one of the things I love that he did last year, that he for some reason just never did in 2019 and 2020, was step up through the pressure, step up through the muck, and he could get to that point. One thing I want to see more of, though, now is the, uh, not horizontal, is the lateral movement within the pocket. I think he's done a good job of the vertical movement, but I think that's where he's really improved, the ability to vertically step through the muck, create space, and kind of get through all of the pass rush. But what I want to see more of is the lateral manipulation. That's where you really take that next step from a pocket passer standpoint. That's what the Brady's and Breezy do. It's the lateral manipulation. To me, when he's forced to go lateral, it typically ends up in him just rolling fully to his right. I need to see more of the you know, dip and dive, in and out. Joe Burrow, by the way, does. If you want to watch film of somebody who I think recently does a good job of it, Joe Burrow, in my opinion, does an incredible job of laterally manipulating the pocket. That's where I still think I didn't see enough progress from Jones and I need to see more of. I 100% agree. I think that's a great take right there, Dan. There was because I feel like we bring it up every time that he's done it. It's only and like it was successful and he didn't end up getting, you know, sacked or something like that. And I felt like we only brought that up maybe a, a couple different times. Like, oh, yeah, he sidestepped that guy he went in there. But like it's not consistent enough at all. He either bails a little bit too early and doesn't trust his ability to do that. And maybe some of that is because there's just a bunch of bodies all around him and he finds a pass. So I don't really necessarily want to fault him for that. But it's definitely something I haven't seen all that much is him being able to do exactly what you said. Tom Brady and what Drew Brees does so successfully. If he can develop that, man, then you know there's just more opportunity in the pocket and then more time for plays to develop downfield. 
Yes. And more time even for the broken plays for these next level athletes like Tony and Wandell out there to, to make something happen out of nothing. So it's all good stuff if he can get better at that. And that's something that I think, you know, he could definitely do. Um, one thing I want to talk about that Cosell said, this is not Cosell. This is what Duffy said. So Duffy said the word that he's got. So this is not based on Duffy's film evaluation or Cosell's film evaluation. He said the word he's got from coaches, players, that things of that nature is Jones leaves too many throws on the field. He doesn't always cut it. He doesn't always cut it loose into tight windows. This is something that Greg didn't really contend with fully, but also didn't agree with fully. He was on the fence of this one. What are your thoughts on that? Because that's a big one for me. I feel like Jones hasn't tried, attempted, or created that many tight window throws. But to me, that is goes right back to the core. And I think this is kind of yep. what Cassell was hinting at, but goes right back to the core of what Cassell said at the start of this thing. When you have a coach like Judge in there creating that nasty environment, that's what I refer to as a nasty environment, where if you make a single mistake, this is what, it's all hell. You're doing laps, you're you're you're, you're getting yelled at, you're, you're, you're asked to not do this, you don't can't run the plays you want to run. When you have that environment, you're not, you know, you're probably not going to attempt tight window throws often. I 100% agree with that. I mean, that definitely goes back to the environment. It's something we brought up on the podcast as well. There were times where I felt like Daniel Jones left some throws on the field. It happened in the red zone. I remember one play that, that kind of sticks out to me, and this kind of comes to, to processing post-snap. It was against the Eagles. It was like the first pass of the game in the Week 12 game, I believe it was, against the Eagles, where the Eagles lined in, in like a too-high defense. And I liked this play call by Jason Garrett. We actually applauded him for it. He ran four verts. 12 personnel he ran four verts against two high and the way he did it he had like chris myrick i think it was like streaking down the field but daniel jones just ended up checking it down to saquon barkley for an incomplete pass over like you know the middle of the field or something like that but i remember thinking like if he was just a little bit patient the pressure really wasn't too crazy on him he would have had definitely a two-on-one matchup against one of those deep half safeties and it's the little plays like that where it's like post snap if you just saw that you could have created an explosive play despite the fact that your offensive coordinator is Jason Garrett. Jason Garrett dialed up the play for you there. We applauded Jason Garrett. We're not a big Jason Garrett podcast, but you didn't take advantage of that situation when it arose. And those are the little things that we talk about that kind of piss us off sometimes. Yeah, for sure. The one that stands out to me, I remember that one now. That was a big one. The one that stands to me just as the as the kind of foundation of this talk is is the red zone play. I think it was versus the Chiefs last, last year where he had the open, wide open slant window to Galladay completely didn't see it. I think it was the Chiefs and Galladay. I'm not positive. You probably remember this, Nick. And then eventually, like, hesitates, hesitates, comes back to, like, Tony super late on the left hash and just throws it over his head. Yeah, that, that was uh, in the red zone, and it was Galladay who was streaking inside, and Tony was kind of heading towards the pylon, and, and Daniel Jones just kind of saw the defender sink underneath Tony, and then last minute just, like, airmailed it over Tony's head to avoid an interception. Yeah, he just has to see that window earlier with Gallia. But look, these are all things that it's not just Jones. A lot of quarterbacks struggle with this. It's And it's something he can get better at. But I do like that Cassell was really enthused and came away thinking, look, he can be a good quarterback still because there it's he could easily we could have easily came away from listening to this because Cassell has no allegiance to the Giants whatsoever. He's not a homer at all. He could have easily just been like, look, this, the consensus is it, it's what you hear from these NFL coaches and execs who are pulled by the athletic. He's the 30th ranked tier four type of guy with no hope. Uh, you know, one of the guys even said, we're not even talking about him next year, but Cassell doesn't feel that way. And he, and he said, there is something to work with and they can make this guy a good quarterback. And look, there are guys in place to do it right now. 
Brian Dable, Mike Kafka. These are people who can make this happen from a schematic standpoint. There's Evan Neal. There's Andrew Thomas. These are tackles who can make this happen from a blocking standpoint, right? Like they have some pieces. Honestly, even the weapons, if somehow they lock box into health from Tony Holiday, like imagine if they lock box into a healthy season of their weapons. Now you're talking about actual weapons for him too. So it does feel like there is still some chance here. I, I know that. I know that it's it's hard for some people to come around to. It's easier for others. We're somewhere in between me and you, Nick. But it does honestly feel that way. So I want to transition to what Greg Cassell said about the scheme. Because I thought that was super, super interesting. He talked a lot about why he's so excited about the system. And a lot of it had to do with the mixture, the combination, Nick, of Mike Kafka coming from the Andy Reid-style offense and Brian Dable. Brian Dable obviously has the track record. Mike Kafka, to me, is almost in some ways even more exciting, Nick, because Kafka got to learn under who, in my opinion, is the single best route designer. I'm going to go as far as saying in NFL history. I don't want to fully say that because like guys like Don, like Don Eric Coriel revolutionized the game, and obviously you can talk about just like the West Coast offense in San Francisco and how different that was at the time and how that revolutionized the game. But as far as modern NFL offenses go, there is no better route designer than Andy Reid. And one of the things that Cassell talks about is how they really love to put stress on the intermediate and vertical levels of the field with route combinations and route designs that put these safeties in conflict. That's something me and you have talked about the importance. This is like a basic X and O's foundation that me and you believe in, Nick, putting stress on the safeties. And one thing they said, Cassell said, is from watching Kafka and the Chiefs, is they love to run the flood concept. They love to have these three-level stretch type re, uh, you know, route combinations with a vertical element in it. And I love that personally. And what he said is he thinks this is going to be a combination of these flood level concepts, these vertical level concepts, but a mix of that. And then bang, hits you a quick game, quick game, quick game, bang. And all this sounded so exciting to me. It is definitely sounds exciting. It's not like Jason Garrett didn't use flood concepts and sale concepts. I mean, one of the plays that he used a lot was that vertical stretch from the one with the but then either two or three, he kind of changed it up a lot, running the the seven route, the corner route, and then the pivot route underneath. Like it, he ran it so much that we were like, oh, this is going to be the play. And then Sterling Shepard will <laughs> run the pivot route. But no, you're right, man. When, once you kind of consider everything, I think you're going to have a better sequencing of plays from this coaching staff. You're going to see plays like that. You're going to see flood concepts against zone coverage to really put players into conflict on the defensive side of the football. You're going to see those quick hitting passes, you know, get four or five yards here, kind of rushing through the air type of stuff. And you're also going to see, hopefully, the Giants tack the middle of the field, tack the sidelines, and just really just take advantage of the critical vulnerabilities of these defenses, depending on the coverages that they use. And that's something that we've criticized Jason Garrett's offense for a little bit. He didn't always do that. You know, it was just a lot of, we're going to run my offense. We're going to try to get 10 yards in three plays, and that's what we're going to do. And again, maybe the offensive line played a part in that. Maybe Daniel Jones played a part in that a little bit. But I think this, what we're going to see right now is going to be so much different. We're going to see a lot more pre-snap motion to really put the defense into a bind to help make Daniel Jones' decision-making a little bit easier. These are the little things we're starting to hear out of, you know, camp and everything like that from these podcasts that Schmelke's doing about the defensive guys talking about, oh man, some of the stuff the offense is doing is going to be creative. I'm looking forward to seeing it, man, because we didn't get to see that too much. Yeah, you'd see sale concepts and you'd see three level reads from Jason Garrett. But when you just ran that last week and the defense watched film on it and then they know what's coming, it's easier to cover than when you disguise it well. And I think that's what Brian Dable's going and Mike Kafka are going to do well here in New York. 
Yeah, and you nailed it. And it's also an element of surprise, too, right? It's like, well, there was all that. It, it, it was part of the offense from Jason Garrett. At the same time, there was also a heavy dosage and mix of the stick routes. Like, a lot of the crap we're just not going to see such a heavy emphasis on from this new regime. There's also a heavy dose of these random 12 and 13 personnel plays where he had, like, motion the receiver back toward the line of scrimmage and run the ball and, like, try to get the advantage of having the extra blocker, which never, never seemed to work for the Giants. But, like, there's these heavy 12 and 13 type packages we're just not going to see. And honestly, not only are they going to put more stress by having a few more, let's say, let's say it's not even, right? Let's say it's only a little bit more of a vertical element at the beginning when they're trying to get things settled, the O-line and Jones learning the offense. And so there's not all these plays of putting stress on the safeties. Well, guess what? They're also going to put stress on the defense horizontally and laterally speaking with the pre-snap motion, with the quick game. And that's something that I think can also make a big impact on, on, on this offense and for NFL defenses because you're now putting stress on the safeties when you run the vertical stuff, and you're also putting stress on the defense from a from a vertical and a horizontal standpoint. That's good shit. That's good stuff right there, right? Like, schematically speaking, that's uh, that sounds really good on paper to me. Absolutely. And if you're also having success attacking the vertical portions of the field, what is that going to do? That's going to force the defense to respect that vertical element, which can open up rushing paths. So now yes. you just have a more complete, offensive approach rather than just okay we don't can't really do anything so we're just going to go three and out you know so that's something else i'm really looking forward to as well for sure let's talk about some of greg's takes on the players but there's one more schematic take that i want to talk about uh that greg brought up that i'm curious to get your take on nick he talked a lot about one of the issues for jones in the offense last year was that the giants based on their offensive line play and again we are expecting a big jump in offensive line play don't want to get too excited about it just yet so we haven't seen it in action, but man, oh man, Evan Neal and Glowinski feel like a totally revamped upgrade on the right side. And on the left side, there is some upside with the potential of Azudu, potential of Lemieux. I don't know. I just feel like it could happen. We could finally have pretty decent offensive line play. But he talked about how, based on how bad it was last year, this really impacted Jones in the sense that the Giants were forced to use tight ends and backs to camouflage and chip his blockers. And what he says is, in his mind, in the modern NFL, that really limits your ability to be successful specifically on third downs because he said you're just seeing way too many examples and this is something me and you talked about throughout our all 22 breakdowns nick i saw this so freaking constantly on film i wrote it down every podcast it was in my notes so constantly we talked about it a lot and it was all these is all these because it's not every play but it was too many plays where the giants have three or four guys running routes and they're going against seven guys dropping in coverage like there were plays where the giants had max protecting it's a four-man pass rush could barely hold up for it and they're running a three-man route against seven in coverage you just have almost no chance to beat that it doesn't matter if you have Julio Jones in his prime, Randy Moss in his prime, and another receiver in his prime. If you're running three-man routes against seven-man coverages, how the hell do you expect to win that on a consistent basis? And the great news is offensive line play is hopefully going to improve, but also schematically standpoint and foundationally speaking, this is not what Dave's and Kafka are about. They're the opposite. They want to get all the guys out and running routes, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that. that. Just that alone, I think, is going to help the Giants be a better offense. In a lot of those situations, too, when the Giants were in a max protect type of situation, they weren't necessarily like flooding a zone. They were trying to create that explosive big play, which you respect, but the defense always tracked on what the heck the Giants were doing. They would do a lot of Yankee type of concepts, which is like 
deep vertical, either slanting inside or a deep post, and then a horizontal route kind of coming. And the Giants would always have that running back or tight end chip and then leak into the flat. A lot of those times, those guys could never really just chip cleanly and leak. They would get held up because the defense would realize what the heck is going on. Defense rarely gets called with any type of holding in those situations. So that's another reason why the Giants didn't have a lot of success in those situations. <laughs> just that upgrade on the offensive line, bro. Like you, you nailed it. Glowinski and Neal. I, I don't. I couldn't even put like a numerical value on how much of an upgrade that is over freaking Nate Solder. You know what I'm curious though of Dan. What does Madden have Evan Neal and Mark Lewinsky ranked <laughs> relative to what they have Nate Solder and whoever the heck you want to put at right guard? I guess Will Hernandez. Yeah, be. Will Hernandez. But I actually want to talk about you basically took the words right out of Greg Cosell's mouth, which is interesting because you didn't listen to this podcast, Nick. So it just shows how good you are from a schematic Thanks, standpoint, X and those, because what he said, which was so true, which you brought up was. It's just essentially wasting players, right? Like, because what you said is what he said. Too often when the Giants tried to do this chip release, these players would get bogged down in the chip and not get out into their routes fast enough. So they were just essentially wasted players. Think of how basic this should be for a, for a coach like Jason Garrett, who's coached for this many years. Are you watching the film? Are you seeing that you're wasting these guys as they can't get out to the route fast enough before the pass rush gets there and the play's blown up? You're simply wasting these guys. They're not doing anything really as blockers, and they're just not getting out into their routes. And even something you touched on a bit there, Nick, stands out to me. Like, when you don't have all these guys running full routes from the snap, you're giving a less chance of getting a defensive holding call. And those are huge. Those extend drives. Those five-yard automatic first downs. Now there's less guys they have to cover, less chance of holding, less chance of pass interference. Just mind-boggling to me that the Giants continue to try that. I get it. The line sucked, man, but there's been bad lines. Like, uh, there's been McVay years where that Rams line sucked, and they're still running everybody on a route every play because it's just basic concept football. Like, don't these guys aren't going to be able to chip and then get out into the route fast enough. Like, come on. Those are just go big, go home type of plays. That's it's all in, bro. Like to to poker stuff, right? Because it's like oh, I'm gonna hit that big post or I'm gonna have that horizontal cross. Both those things are taken away. What the heck are you doing? You're sitting right. there and you're taking a sack. You're trying to roll to your right. It makes Daniel Jones look bad. But at the end of the day, it's like what can Daniel Jones do in those situations when both of those concepts or both of those routes, I should say, are taken? He can't really do much when that tight end can't leak out. So it's just a, when it fails, it, it fails pretty miserably. Another good another good point for the Daniel Jones defense, by the way, as well, because there were a lot of situations that me and Nick saw where there were these go all in big player, nothing two route combinations or three route combinations. What the hell is he supposed to do when that doesn't work? It just now what one that did work not to cut you off yeah, was that ahead. John was that John Ross play that was built off a of play action. That was a four man route because Saquon Barkley leaked in. But Evan Ingram just kind of chipped, released cleanly. And the reason that worked was because the Saints played inverted cover two or Tampa two robber, which you line in like a two high type defense or a cover six type of defense. And then you drop that middle of the field guy as like a Tampa two type of linebacker. And then you have basically two safeties who or two safeties post snap who are cornerbacks pre-snap or at least one of the safeties is, is actually still a safety. But what happens is the middle of the field is so exposed because John Ross is going to obviously run past the Tampa two robber player. He's going up against a cornerback who has outside leverage, who is going to guard that deep half. And that other safety can't catch up with John Ross's speed from the backside. That's one of the reasons why that play worked was because of the defense, the saints called, they kind of got picked off there. Love it. Love it, Nick. All right, let's get into a couple quick player evals and then wrap this thing up. Cassell's really high and really intrigued by Ricky Seals-Jones. Talk about a guy who's had zero hype this offseason. But according to Cassell, man, he's like, 
I've been burned before on Jones, but man, he's like, I feel like he's a incredibly talented athlete, big time recruit out of football and basketball. He said he's had some moments in the NFL and film that have really stood out to Greg. And he said he always thought he could ultimately evolve into a really good player. He said he's been wrong about that. He hasn't done it yet, but he thinks maybe now he finally has a chance at the Giants. And he says he has real vertical ability from the tight end position. And that's rare. This is from Greg Cosell. Yeah, I mean, it's something that we've seen throughout his career. This is somebody who was undrafted in 2017, was a former wide receiver at Texas A&M who was converted to a tight end because he was like 235 pounds. Now he's like 245 pounds, not the best blocker of any sorts, but Washington would run him up the seam. I mean, he did that quite often there. I mean, you, you kind of look at his route tree or his heat map or whatever the heck you want to kind of look at, you could see he aligned at Y, he aligned at H back, he aligned as a big slot. And a lot of his routes were just bending over the middle of the field, right. just kind of allow him to just open up his stride and just try to get vertical. And I felt like he did a pretty damn solid job doing so. He has long strides, he's a good athlete, and he's good, unfortunately, as we know, in contested catch situations. Yeah, you nailed it, Nick. So I think uh, that that was a great eval. We're going long, so I'm going to try to get through these last ones pretty quickly. But let's talk about his thoughts on... So first of all, he said he thinks the Giants offense is a lot of upside. That's awesome to hear. But let's talk about his thoughts on Greg... On, on uh, Greg. Talking about Greg Cassell. Let's talk about his thoughts on Josh Azudu. Because Greg thinks, this is Greg Cassell, that he's going to be a starter. He said maybe not by week one, but he said he absolutely loved, not like Nick, loved his tape. He thinks he can play tackle, but he's going to be even better at guard. He said, it would not surprise me if he's starting sooner than people think. He said, the coach I spoke with at UNC was raving about him. Thinks he's going to be really, really good at the next level. And again, he followed up with this again. Cassell said, I loved his tape. I think he's going to be the starter at left guard. I love to hear it, too. I mean, I can see where that's going to happen or why that's going to happen. It's not like the Giants are really strong at the left guard position if Shane Lemieux plays like he played in 2020. We have to see a leap from Shane Lemieux to kind of hold off Joshua Azudu. I think by the end of the season, Azudu can definitely work in there and play. I mean, it's not like he's super raw. There are a lot of traits that Joshua Azudu currently has that are very translatable to the NFL. I think he will see playing time. Giants spent a top 100 pick on this player. They really like Josh Azudu. He can play multiple positions, and he's, by all accounts, a very bright and smart player. So I'm looking forward to his future as well. It's good to see that Greg Cassell also really likes liked his film because, I mean, I, the sky's the limit for a player like Josh Azudu. He has a lot of interesting traits. I'm so with you, Nick. This is, like, becoming one of my new high upside hopes for the season. Like, I, I didn't even write about this earlier. We didn't talk about the camp hopes. We'll, we'll do that. We'll, we'll just get into camp stuff tomorrow because we're starting off tomorrow with a practice, and we're going to get Shane and Dave speaking. So hopefully we're going to get a lot of good content out of that. So we'll focus on it there because it's still early part of training camp. I'm fine doing it there. But, man, this is becoming one of my bigger optimism things. Like if Azudu can – if Azudu plays well enough in the camp and preseason that they're like, you know what, we don't care. Maybe there will be some lumps, but guess what? We're getting lumps from Shane Lemieux anyway. We're getting lumps from whoever the heck we're going to put in there anyway. Let's take the lumps with the upside. If he can get – if he can prove that and start by week one, Man, I'm starting to feel really confident because, like you said, the ability to get him on the move for the quick passing game, to get him on the move for the screen game with Barkley, get him on the move for just Barkley runs, design runs, it's it makes me excited. He gives them more upside than anyone on that interior by far, in my opinion, by absolutely by far. So I'm starting to get a little hopeful there. Yeah, I think by far you're 100% correct. And I think if 
the competition is comparable between Lemieux and Azudu, you allow Lemieux to lose that job. Now, you don't put a worse player in there, but I don't want to throw Joshua Azudu if he's not ready to the fire and then have him play poorly and then him get benched for Shane Lemieux. I'd rather Shane Lemieux get benched for Joshua Azudu. I, I hope none of that, 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 situation doesn't even have to happen and whoever earns the starting job ends yeah. up being a good damn football player but at the end of the day i do think you know allowing josh Azuda to be comfortable enough to play is is probably wise if shane lemieux is not a complete liability and he is competent yep i think you did a great job now let's let's wrap up because we're going long let's wrap up with this a final nugget from cassell that i absolutely love this was perhaps my favorite thing he said on the entire podcast he said when he asked coaches to give him offensive coach, when he asked offensive coordinators that he pulled this offseason and, and throughout the last few offseasons to give him the three defensive coordinators that they had the most trouble with, he said Wink Martindale's name was the one that always came up and came up the most because of what he does with his fronts and with his pressures. And he said a lot of what we already talked about, Nick, but it's good to hear confirmation from the offense coaches he said there's just so many times where he bluffs pressure and it looks like it's coming from one side and it ends up coming from another side and he said the core of what all nfl coaches want to do is set a five-man protection and feel good about it and what wink does is never allow you to do that and that just made me feel so good Oh, it's excellent. And if anybody wants a breakdown on some of the sacks from Baltimore from last season, head on over to Big Blue View's YouTube page. I did a couple breakdowns there of those sacks. And it is what it is, man. I mean, it's coming from the second level. It's coming from the edges. It's coming from the interior. You have creepers. You have guys dropping back into coverage. You have dudes who you did not expect to come. Come. You have two verse ones, three verse twos schemed in the defensive favor. So there's just a lot of... I don't know what exactly is going to happen. We're going to snap the football and then we're going to react. And that creates chaos. And as he always says, pressure breaks pipes. And you know what? You can create pressure if you're creative enough with your defensive front by not even bringing five or six guys. You can do it with four guys. You just have to be really creative. And I'm telling you, go through Wink Martindale's film. That dude is creative as heck, bro. So great hire right there. Hopefully it works out. But, you know, the secondary, that could be an issue. And, you know, early on we, we could see some, you know, rumblings about it. But overall, I'm excited. I'm so excited. And maybe it's a blessing in disguise if everything's not in place from a personnel standpoint just yet, because that means they won't lose Martindale that fast. I want him as the coach <laughs> of this defense. No, I'm a, like, seriously, dude, like I want him as a coach of this defense for a long time, really long. We'll see what happens, but I hope he can, he can, he can just enjoy his time here. I know he said he wants to be a head coach. It's going to be tough though, man. Like they really very rarely hire defensive minded coaches these days. There's like one, one in every four or five these right now everybody wants the, the hot offense coordinator to mold the qb so we'll see what happens there but we'll wrap up there training camps can start tomorrow keep it locked and loaded there's gonna be a heavy heavy dose of podcasts coming your way next month next five months so we're excited for it let's go giants Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. 
Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.